You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. All right, so before we were beautifully interrupted by the Easter weekend in which we celebrated the good news of the salvation and the life which Jesus won for us through his death and resurrection, I call it a beautiful interruption because God can interrupt me at any time he wants to remind me of that uh, amazing and glorious message of the gospel. But before that, we were making our way through the gospel of Luke and we were about two-thirds of the way through Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off. So on that note, if you want to please turn with me to Luke chapter 6, we'll be starting on verse 37 and reading all the way to verse 49. So Luke 6, 37 to 49. Here's Jesus speaking to his disciples and all those gathered around to hear him teach. He says to them, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye, when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your eye? Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do things I say? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the destruction of that house was great. That's the word of the Lord. All right, so... Obviously, there is a lot of content to get through today, so we're going to be here all day. I'm just kidding. But, but on that end, you, you may have noticed that a lot of the verses in this chunk of, of passage are some of the most iconic and some of the most quoted or commonly used phrases in all of Scripture, right? Lines like, give and it will be given to you. Lines like, don't judge, right? Look at the plank in your own eye. The blind leading the blind. A bad tree produces bad fruit. Your actions reflect your heart build your house on a firm foundation, right? We, we use and we hear these phrases all the time, don't we? But if I may, and I do may, 
because none of you can stop me. There, there are also, these are also some of the most misused and widely taken out of context teachings of Jesus as well. For example, have you ever tried to correct someone, someone you love, and the first thing that comes out of their mouth is a defensive, are you judging me? Are you judging me? Right? As if to say, I can do whatever I want because you're not allowed to judge me. Right? Or, we, we've done this. Like, say you're, you're going to the dentist and your dentist asks you knowingly and accusingly, have you been flossing daily? And you're like, stop judging me! Right? Clean the food out of your own teeth before picking out of mine. Right? That, you've done that. Come on. Or if you've wanted to say that. Be honest. Here's another example of an erroneous use of his teachings in this passage. Okay? Maybe you've gone to a church and the pastor's giving a message on tithing and offerings. Uh-oh. And, and so as a motivator, the pastor pulls out the old, give and it, and it shall be given to you. Press down, shaken together, runneth over, pouring out from, into your lap from the treasuries of heaven. Right? The more you give, the more you'll be like Scrooge McDuck swimming in on the cash monies. Right? You've, you've heard that. I'm glad you haven't heard that. Uh, now you have. Or for, for example, say, say you see someone getting treated horribly by another person, and your immediate thought is, you know, well, that's karma for you, right? They, they must have done something bad to someone else to deserve that kind of treatment. As the Lord himself said, you know, the measure you use will be measured to you, right? See what I mean? And also, are you judging my accents and impressions right now? Just kidding. And anyways, we, we know that that's how these verses are often used, right? But, but yet within the context of the whole Sermon on the Plain, when we read that whole chapter, that whole passage in, in one go, we can, we can clearly see that none of those interpretations are even remotely accurate or how Jesus meant for us to apply them. And so first of all, in order to come to this text appropriately, that is with ears to hear, and in order to interpret it correctly, that is with eyes to see, right? we should first of all, clarify the overarching purpose of this passage and, and really the overarching purpose of the whole Sermon on the Plain, which Jesus is teaching us, so that, so that we can get a context of where we're at. And, and it's really simple, to be honest. Here, here it is. Jesus is giving us a description of the way in which citizens of the kingdom of God will live and relate to him and to one another after experiencing his salvation. Really simple. Jesus is giving us a description of the way in which citizens of the kingdom of God will live and relate to him and to one another after experiencing his salvation. So, for example, as, as Canadian citizens already living in Canada, we didn't do anything to earn that, right? We're, just, we're already here. We're living in Canada. There are spe specific expectations of us, right? right? That, that we obey the laws, that we respect each other, that we pay taxes, unfortunately, that, and that, that we watch hockey, right? That we drink the toxic chemical known as Tim Hortons, right? That, that we mow our lawns and on and on and on. But in a similar way, when we become spiritually blessed as homeowners within the kingdom of God, that is for those of us who've built our house on the solid foundation of Christ, there are now specific ways in which we're called and of course empowered and transformed to live. And unsurprisingly, the way Jesus teaches us to relate to him and, and to one another is exactly, the way, is, is, is exactly the same way he relates to God the Father and to us. Right? That is, with faithful obedience towards God the Father and with generous mercy and grace to 
towards us. So before anything else, the Sermon on the Plain is a description of who Jesus is. And secondly, it's a description of who his disciples are going to be and how they're going to live within his kingdom. Just as he tells us here in this passage, the fully trained disciple will look like his teacher. In fact, Jesus also teaches us in this passage that those who call him Lord, Lord, will listen to his words and do them, right? In other words, if he's truly our Lord and King, we'll obey him and we'll reflect him. And furthermore, he says that the state of our heart will directly dictate our words and our actions. And God tells us in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, that through the promised Messiah, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what this means is that that just as we learned last week at Easter as well, that when we surrender our lives by faith to Jesus, he removes our old sinful nature, our old heart of stone, and replaces it with a new heart and a new spirit within us, and therefore will begin, will then begin to live like him and for him. Again, if our house has been built on his foundation, we'll act like citizens of his kingdom. Or as Jesus tells us, we'll bear good fruit. We'll bear good fruit. And what does good fruit look like? That's a good question to ask. What does good fruit look like? Well, two weeks ago, before Easter, we learned that good fruit appears when we love one another. Pastor Blair preached on this. When we love one another, even our enemies and even those who've hurt us, that's when good fruit appears. And naturally then, Jesus moves on to the subject of not judging one another. And this is a natural progression because how can we claim to love one another, especially our enemies, if we're simultaneously also casting judgment and condemnation on them. You can't do that, right? But in the same vein, how can we even create a welcoming and honest or encouraging and uplifting atmosphere within the church if we're too afraid we'll be judged or shamed or excommunicated when we admit our struggles or ask for prayer for certain sins, right? And, and, and more importantly, how can we claim to have experienced and received the love and grace of Christ in our lives if we're not in turn willing and, and, and actively offering that same measure of love and grace to others? Right? To not do this would be hypocrisy of the highest order. It would be the same as acting like many of the self-righteous Pharisees who we've, we've already been seen spending their time policing and condemning other people for their sins and failure to obey the laws, right? And this seems to be, <clears throat> excuse me, this seems to be the very type of judgment which Jesus is denouncing here. Uh, theologian Sam Storms says it like this. He says, it would appear that Jesus is prohibiting the sort of judgmental criticism which is self-righteous, in that we think we are wholly free of the sin which we so readily see in others, and hypercritical in that it often is excessive and beyond what is necessary to achieve the end in view, and destructive in that it does not edify or restore, but tears down the person whom we attack. He is prohibiting that sort of judgment which we pass on to others, not out of concern for their spiritual health and welfare, but solely to parade our alleged righteousness before men. Another theologian, uh, the late John Stott, 
correctly uses the term censoriousness as, as an all-encompassing term to describe this type of judgment. He, he defines censoriousness like this. He says, it does not mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. The censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. Uh, And another theologian named A.B. Bruce expands on this idea when he writes that censoriousness is a pharisaic vice, that of exalting ourselves by disparaging others. A very cheap way of attaining moral superiority. So we, we, we kind of know who these, these judgmental types are, right? Some of, us, some of us know them well, or maybe you're one of them. I don't know. They're, they're those who constantly nag, right? Constantly nitpick, and they, they point out faults about others without having all the facts even, or, or those who always assume, assume the worst about you, or, or maybe even they, they, they make up, or maybe they even make up some criticism about you if there's nothing actually negative to be found. And yet their goal in doing it isn't to bring correction or restoration, but rather to create drama. And, and, and so that deep down they can feel morally superior or more doctrinally correct, or maybe even so that by comparison they don't feel as terrible for their own personal shortcomings and sins. And with that being said, though, I know that, that, that at times and in certain circumstances, we all have a tendency to do this, right? We, we permit or we find ourselves looking down on other people with this, this kind of hypercritical judgment. And, and we might do it for many reasons. I have a list. I don't know if you've got that up there already, Josh. So these are some reasons we might judge others. This is not exhaustive. This is just some of the reasons. Sometimes it's because we're already feeling ashamed or guilty ourselves and we want to bring people down to our level. Misery loves company, right? We can't look at ourselves with grace, so we can't look at others with grace. Or, or sometimes we judge people as, as, as a sort of defense mechanism, right? To point out others' faults so that ours remain kind of out of the spotlight or, or don't look as bad by comparison. As John Stott again writes, we, we have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gravity of our own. Or sometimes we judge people harshly because we actually kind of enjoy the feeling of, of knowing. You know, we, we know and we like gossiping about others' dirty secrets. We're like, ooh, I know what he's into, right? We, we kind of enjoy that. Sometimes we judge people because we get caught up in the heat of the moment, right? And, and we become accusatory or we become bitter, like in a moment of anger or because or someone hurt you or betrayed you or something. And, and so you want to put them down and you want to make them feel bad. Right? Or maybe it's due to a deep-seated prejudice or political idealism or racism or, or some other factor that causes us to cast judgment. And more often than not, I think our judgment of others as Christians comes from a place of, of that religious or, or moral self-righteousness. Right, where we feel like the Pharisees that due to our own Bible knowledge or our good moral living that that makes us better than others, and that so that we now have the right to to look down on or police others and their faults or their immorality. 
right? And in most of these cases, in most of these cases, we'll actually try to justify what we're doing, right? We'll try to justify our judgment of others by convincing ourselves that we're, we're, we're only doing it out of tough love. It's only tough love, right? We're only condemning and pointing out these little faults and sins in others because we think we're, we're, we're seeking justice and truth or we think we're standing up for God or because we think we genuinely care for that person. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, that when we, when we judge people like this, says, the fact of the matter is that we are not really concerned about helping this other person. We are interested only in condemning him. We pretend, we pretend to have this great interest. We pretend that we are very interested at finding this blemish in his life. But in reality, as our Lord has already shown us, we're, we're just really glad to discover it. In other words, and, and again, at the very at the very core of this type of critical and judgmental attitude then is, is that self-righteous hypocrisy. It's bad fruit. It's a bramble bush or thorn bush, however you want to call it. Bad fruit, which reveals to us an evil heart that hasn't been fully renewed by Christ, if at all. Because we all know that the hypocrite cries foul and condemnation against others in the light while, if, while refusing to acknowledge his own heinous deeds committed in the dark. The hypocrite believes others are worthy of judgment while refusing to judge himself by the st- same standards with which he doles out. But Jesus warns us, the measure you used, the measure you use will be measured to you. And not in a karma, balance of the universe sort of way, but by the righteous judge, by Jesus himself. Or as it says in Matthew 7, 2, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Ultimately, though, and the worst part of all is that, is that to, to judge one another is actually an attempt to place ourselves upon the throne of God. Because only God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is worthy to judge. Right? His judgment is perfect because only he's perfect and without sin. And only the Lord knows the true state and true motive of a person's heart. Only he has all the facts. Only he knows what pain or what upbringing or what circumstances, what motivations or whatever else has brought each person to the place they're at to do the things and to, that, that, that they're doing or to say the things that they're saying, right? And in the same vein, only God knows how their story is meant to end. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who himself will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Judgment is the Lord's. Again, only he knows what awaits each person on the day when Jesus returns with all authority to judge the living and the dead. So even if we think we have all the facts about a person, we're simply unable in our own imperfection and in our own finite knowledge to judge rightly and without impartiality. Romans 14.4 reminds us as well. It says, who are you? 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So again, his, ju- his judgment and his justice is perfect. Ours isn't even close. So who are we to decide who goes to heaven or who goes to hell? Who are we to decide who deserves salvation and who doesn't? And besides, if we choose to we're not only placing ourselves on God's throne, which is Jesus' right alone, but we're telling God that we distrust his judgment. We're saying, I don't, I don't trust that you're going to judge rightly, God, so I'm going to do it myself. And we're also distrusting those he set in authority to judge within our society, government, all that, all that kind of stuff. And, and to that end, though, if, if God actually decided to judge any one of us according to the measure we actually deserved, then we'd be toast. Burnt toast. Headed for hell kind of toast. Right? But yet, instead of leaving us to get what we deserved, Jesus took it upon himself. He took the judgment for our sin to the point of death at the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be covered in his righteousness. By grace, we have been saved through faith, not of our own doing, but it is the gift of God, right? As it says in Ephesians. Or in John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So, so this is the point, that anyone who has truly experienced this, experienced this generous and, and undeserved mercy and grace, grace from Jesus, who, who's no longer under, the, under the, the judgment of death, we should be more than ready and willing to model it and offer it to others. Jesus once told a parable about a servant who couldn't afford to pay this massive debt to his master. And so the master took pity on him and and graciously forgave him of the debt. That's incredible. And then on the very same day, that servant, he's, he's walking downtown, he runs into his own servant who owed a debt to him and couldn't pay it either. But instead of forgiving him of it as he himself had been earlier, the servant choked the poor guy and then had him arrested and thrown in jail. Of course, the servant's ungracious actions get back to his master, who then furiously rescinds on his own forgiveness of debt to him and then rhetorically asks him from Matthew 18.33, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The lesson is obvious. It's the hypocrite who selfishly receives forgiveness for himself while on the same breath refuses to offer it to others. In contrast, those who have been freely and graciously forgiven of their sins should now be ready and willing to freely forgive and have grace for others. That's what the underlying premise of this whole passage this morning is, about, is all about. Judge not, and you'll find that judgment has been removed from you. Forgive, and you'll find that you've also been forgiven. And more than that, give this mercy generously for the measure you use will be given to you.
At this point, it seems as though Jesus is, is using an example from their local markets in which, in which someone selling grain would, would actually fill up a jar, but then be, before they sealed it, they, they would shake the jar to settle the grain, and then they would, they would press the grain down in the jar even further. Right? They, they'd squish it in there. Also that they could add more grain into the jar to the point of it overflowing. The, the point was, was to get as much as they could in the jar for their customers. They weren't Dutch. I can say that because I'm half Dutch. So it's no judgment. It's just looking at the plank in my own eye. We're, right, we're called to be incredibly and unconditionally generous in our mercy and in our understanding and in our forgiveness to one another to the point of overflowing. That's the, that's the first primary lesson here. But, but here's the tricky part. How to, how to walk this line. Here's the tricky part. This doesn't mean that we ignore injustice. Right? This doesn't mean that we're meant to condone or affirm sinful lifestyles. This doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to those who are straying in, in their sin. Jesus never ignored our sin. He actually lovingly calls it out. There's consequences for sin. Jesus took those consequences for our sin upon himself, right? So that we could receive his grace and be restored. But he never ignores our sin. And so while the first and primary principle is to be merciful with one another to the point of overflowing, yet we still have a mandate as Christians to lovingly correct and spiritually restore one another within the body of Christ. Galatians 6, 1-2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, and bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus tells, us as, Jesus tells us as well in our passage from this morning that we're supposed to take the splinter out of our brother's eye. Yeah, he actually says that. Most people stop at the don't judge part and look at the plank in your own eye part, but we need to understand that we're clearly meant to correct and restore one another. Again, just to clarify, we're not meant to, meant to cast judgment or condemnation. That's, that's God's role. But it's also immoral and sinful even to refuse or to neglect to help one another when our hearts have gone astray. And in that regard, Jesus also tells us that we're able to, and, and even meant to, discern the state of someone else's heart to a certain level, right? Simply by taking a look at the fruit in which they produce in their lives. Of course, we'll never know the depths of someone's heart in the way that God does. But we don't have to be a spiritual heart surgeon to get the gist of it by looking at the evidence of their words and actions, right? The fruit reveals the heart. Yet the difference between those in, in the world and those who are citizens of the kingdom of God is what we do with that information. 
right? Again, we don't judge. We don't, we don't cancel culture them. And neither do we condone or affirm their choices. That's what the world does when they see someone that they disagree with or see someone in a quote-unquote sin. Instead, we, as Christians, we're meant to extend mercy and patience and gentleness while also speaking the truth in love in order to ultimately seek spiritual restoration. But this, this next part is, is extremely important. We often, we often ignore this part and we go straight to the trying to correct someone. This part is incredibly important. Jesus tells us that before we can do that, before we have the capacity to do that, before we can even attempt to take the splinter out of our brother or sister's eye, before we can even have the capacity to be generous in mercy and in grace, we must first be, be following three specific principles that Jesus gives us here so that we can have the proper posture and attitude when we, do, when we go about doing it. So Jesus instructs us here. Number one, there's three, three principles here that he tells us we, we have to be doing before we even attempt to take the splinter out of someone else's eye. Number one, we need to be following a trustworthy teacher. Again, Jesus reminds us that a disciple becomes like his teacher. So in order to act the way we're meant to act, and even to become the type of of leader ourselves who can lovingly and graciously lead others into the truth, we have to make sure that we're following someone who models this themselves. Negatively speaking, He writes, the spiritually blind who follow the spiritually blind will eventually fall with them into a pit. I wonder what he means by pit. In other words, if sin is our master, or more specifically, if we're following or learning from someone who's hypercritical or condemning or self-righteously opinionated, then we'll start to act like that as well. But conversely, if we follow after those who walk in the fruit of the Spirit, those who walk in truth and in kindness and mercy and encouragement and patience and humility towards others in Jesus' name, will then begin to emulate those characteristics in our lives. So be wary of who you follow and who you learn from and who you even take criticism from. The obvious point here is that ultimately we need to make sure we're following after Jesus himself Because the more we follow after him, the more we'll be transformed into his likeness. And in the same vein, if we're following someone who's Christ-like and trustworthy, we also need to be humble and trusting enough to receive their discipline and their correction in our lives as well. If we can't receive correction from someone, we, we can't dole it out. So we need to be following a trustworthy teacher namely Jesus and those who reflect him. Which leads me to the next principle which Jesus teaches us is, is number two, we, we must acknowledge the plank in our own eye first. This is what we often fail to do. Right? But before we can see clearly enough to lead or correct others, we must first make sure that the plank in our own eye, right, which is, you know, everyone hold their arm like this in your own eye. How well can you see? Not very well. How can we lead others into the truth if we can't see ourselves? So we have to address that sin in our own lives first. 
It has to be acknowledged, first of all, and then taken care of through repentance. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. This not only ensures that, that we're not trying to point out someone else's sin from a place of hypocrisy, but it also gives us the proper posture of humility and compassion because we've experienced grace, right? Because again, when we can recognize in our sin that we're just as deserving of judgment and condemnation as the next guy, yet Jesus graciously took it all for us, we'll be less likely to cast judgment and rather more than ready to love and forgive others in the same measure that we've received from him. Which again is a grace that is unconditional, sacrificial, and overflowing. And so it's only once we've addressed our own sin, that plank in our own eye, that we can turn our attention onto helping others with theirs. And this leads us to the final principle Jesus teaches us. Number three, we must be living in obedience to Christ. Obedience to the Lord's instruction is the proof of our faith and salvation. It doesn't earn our salvation. It's the proof that we've been saved and transformed in Christ. It's the fruit of a changed and renewed heart. As Jesus says, it's to, it's to build our house on a solid foundation that cannot be destroyed by rain or wind or flood. <clears throat> so it's only when we, <clears throat> excuse me, time for water. And so it's only when we ourselves are, are, are growing and walking in a life of bearing good fruit that we can then help or lovingly disciple others to do the same. It'd be pretty hypocritical for us to like try to teach others to walk, to obey Jesus when we're not doing it ourselves, right? And while we'll never be perfect in obedience, it's not that we have to be perfect in obedience, but that has to be our pursuit, that has to be our heart. But that's actually part of the point as well. The point is that, that, we're, that we're not perfect and that we all need Jesus, who is perfect for us. No one's better than anyone else. That's the attitude we're, we're to have before the cross when we seek to restore others and to build them up in Christ. So finally then, as, as Tabiti Aniabwile writes, we will not be able to discern or judge the hearts of others with any kind of clarity or accuracy unless we, we are first generous in our posture toward them are following sound teaching ourselves and are eager to deal with our own stuff first. Until those things are true of us, we should not worry too much about others. Instead, we should fall to our knees before God, asking for this kind of integrity and humility. So then, and only then, will we be ready and able to lovingly take the speck out of someone else's eye. But before we wrap it up this morning, I, I want to note that taking out someone's speck isn't as easy as just pointing it out to them or even telling them to just stop doing it or stop being bad. No, as, as Paul reminds us in, in his letter to the Galatians, which we read earlier, when we seek to spiritually restore someone after they've been caught in a transgression, we need to be ready and willing to sacrifice for them, to carry that burden with them until it's fully laid down at the cross. In other words, don't bother. Don't bother pretending you care. 
Don't bother pointing out someone's sin or error unless you're ready to join them, join your brother and sister in Christ in the process of repentance and healing. But honestly, though, if we are truly concerned about someone's sin and error, we will be ready to walk with that person in a spirit of gentleness and to be patient with them until they've been restored in Christ. We will be ready to sacrifice and give our time and give our emotions and our love and our money and our mercy and our encouragement and, if applicable, our forgiveness. We will be ready to pray with that person and listen to them and to read Scripture with them and to pick them up when they fall and to keep them accountable. Listen, it's, it's super easy to cast judgment. That's the easiest thing we can do. But it's incredibly hard and humbling to seek restoration and reconciliation. But we're called to do that. But it takes sacrifice. In fact, Jesus even humbled himself and came into creation to show us what that life looks like. And then he gave his life and he died on the cross to make it possible, possible for us. Restoration and reconciliation takes humility and sacrifice. This is also why we need to be humbly following after Jesus with hearts of repentance and hunger for righteousness and, and with faith before we can even attempt to, to take out the speck in each other's eyes. We need the heart of Jesus. We need his grace, his love, his compassionate heart, and his spirit within us. We must first dig deep and build our house on this solid foundation. So, as believers who've hopefully done this or are in the process of doing this or growing in it, let's be sure then, as, as citizens of the kingdom of God, to live not, not with judgment or condemnation towards one another, but rather to relate to one another in the light of the truth and grace with which we've been given by God through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's seek to always relate and restore one another with generous mercy and unconditional forgiveness. In the name of Jesus, amen. 